when you can open up your own level of self-awareness and couple that with physical health, emotional health, and looking after your mental well-being, that's where like these long-term sustainable changes can really happen. Hi, my name is Ella McChrystal. The New Mind is a show that discusses all things brain, body, soul, in order to discover how you can cultivate a new mind, a healthy mind, a happy mind. Today, I'll be looking at the diet industry, its impact on individuals and what we can do about it. The diet industry has been thriving for decades with weight loss and diet products being marketed to individuals as the solution to their problems with food and their bodies. However, research and evidence have shown that this industry is often exacerbating these problems rather than alleviating them. As a psychotherapist, I see a wide range of food and body issues amongst my clients. Some of the most common issues I encounter include eating disorders, including anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa and binge eating disorder. Body dysmorphia, which is a preoccupation with perceived flaws or defects in one's physical appearance, which can lead to anxiety, depression and other mental health issues. Emotional eating. So many people use food to regulate emotions such as stress, anxiety or depression. Chronic dieting, probably one of the biggest problems, which is all about restricting food intake in an attempt to control weight. Clients who chronically diet may have a preoccupation with food and weight, engage in rigid and restrictive eating patterns and may experience feelings of guilt, shame or failure. Negative body image which is a distorted perception of one's physical appearance. Orthorexia, which is an obsession with healthy eating. I say healthy in inverted commas there. An extreme preoccupation with quality, purity and morality of food. And of course, obesity stigma. Clients who are overweight or obese may experience stigma and discrimination due to their body size. I really feel I want to look at some of these issues more deeply, which is why today I've brought on Laura Hater. Laura is a women's nutrition and fitness coach who is passionate and is an advocate for health and well-being. She helps women ditch the yo-yo fad diets. She creates sustainable and lifelong results whilst helping people to build a strong body and bulletproof confidence. I wanted Laura to help us understand how we can reframe our thinking around diets and fitness. Laura, welcome to The New Mind. How are you? Really well this morning, thank you. I've been looking forward to doing this since we've had it booked in. Well, the reason I've asked you, Laura, is because one, I've known you for some time now and I really love that holistic approach that you take with your clients. Mm -hmm. Two, I know that your coaching business is really booming at the minute. So one, I'm really, really grateful that you're here. But two, you've got lots of things that we can delve into and talk about, including actually some of your own personal story as well, which I think really adds flavor to the to the conversation because when we look at women's health, we're not just looking at physical health, as you know, and this is your whole approach as well. It's looking at the sort of mind as well, isn't it? And making sure that we're healthy inside out. So what was one of the sort of main reasons you got into this area of work? I guess for me, I've always been into fitness. Well, I say always. I've been into fitness since I was around 21, so I'm coming up to 10 years now. I um, hated mm. peeing or anything physical in school, absolutely despised it, but really got into bodybuilding in my early 20s. And then 
I was in an abusive relationship when I was about 26. This is going back four or five years ago now. Um, Yeah, four years ago now. And that relationship just absolutely like shattered me. It broke all of my self-esteem, my confidence. I mean, you already know that you know I was in the lowest place possibly with my mental health. I was in the hospital, the psych ward, um, under a lot of a lot of care from mm. you know specialists because my mental health just deteriorated so much. And as a result of that, I started to lose weight quite quickly because I wasn't eating. I had so much stress and cortisol running around my body, it just couldn't function. And then I got into pretty intense therapy. And throughout that therapy, I started to realize how important looking after my physical health was actually for my mental well-being as well. So Mm -hmm. it was like everything coupled together, like going to the gym was surface level and superficial for me to begin with. But then when I started therapy, I realized that, oh, actually it made me get up and get dressed and leave the house, which I weren't doing at that time. It made me sleep better because I was using energy. So I needed to sleep and I needed to sleep in order to perform well in the gym. I needed to fuel my workout. So I needed to actually eat. So it really created a lot of structure and routine for me during a period of my life where I had absolutely none of that. So Mm. I started to realize how important it was actually looking after my physical health with my mental health, coupled with the therapy work that I was doing, I was taking a real holistic approach to my mental well-being and emotional well-being. And I think when you can open up your own level of self-awareness and couple that with physical health, emotional health, and looking after your mental well-being, that's where like these long-term sustainable changes can can really happen. That's kind of how I how I got into everything. And when I had that like mental breakdown, I had time off of work. I had to relocate from Hertfordshire to Wales, which is 200 miles away wow. for, for those who are listening that don't know where they are. So my life completely was flipped upside down. And I took it as an opportunity to restart my life because, you know, I had no financial commitments. I had no job that I needed to be in. So I said, what do I enjoy doing? What am I really passionate about? And it was fitness. And I think you and I even spoke a little bit about life coaching before I decided to like incorporate the fitness side of things. And then it it just kind of grew. It was probably brewing for at least a year to two years before I actually took the plunge to to go ahead and do it. So it, it evolved over the years. I just took that opportunity as a time to reset and really evaluate what's important to me. What do I care about? What do I want to spend the rest of my life doing? And yeah, here I am now living my dream. <laughs> it's crazy because I know, and I know you've given us the sort of long story short there, mm. but I know that that was such a, well, it was a make or break time, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned there that, that you with the psych ward and you were under a certain amount of care. But I think if you don't mind for me to really mm-hmm. give context to that, you really were in a situation where it could have gone one way or the other. Yeah. 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 It was. And I just wanted to highlight that because something that I think a lot of girls in particular struggle with is getting into the gym in the first place. Mm-hmm. I work out a lot. And I still, even now, after years and years and years of exercise, I still get some, if I go to a different gym, to a gym I don't know, I still get that gym anxiety. And that's something that I think we don't, I mean, I I know you talk about these things, but I don't think people often talk about gym anxiety because they think 
well, people think maybe, I'm guessing, that they're the only ones that feel that and that everybody else is super confident. But for you to walk in that gym and make those decisions when you really were a make or break time in your life, where on earth does one find that resilience to just, like you say, get up, set your alarm and make that decision? Because that sounds easy for those that don't know how difficult it is, but it's really hard, isn't it? Yeah. That's a really tough question, actually. And I think if I'm being truthfully honest, I don't really know. I think there's probably just, well, if I look back now, I think it's quite obvious that there was always this burning desire in me to survive because even like throughout my whole life, there's been quite a lot of trauma and a lot of things have happened that's made life really difficult for me. And when I look back now, I can just see like this survival instinct in me that was always just wanting to go. And I kind of always knew that there was something in me that was, that needed to come out and that needed to be unlocked, but I never knew what that was. And I never knew how to channel that. I never had the support in place or an environment where I could truly explore like who I am, what I was. But also when you are at like that absolute lowest point, you have nowhere to go (laughs) from rock bottom. So it's, it, it was kind of like, well, What's the worst that's going to happen because things literally can't get any worse? And I would go into that gym riddled with anxiety. My head would be down. I wouldn't want to make eye contact with anyone. And throughout that first period, I was actually, you know, I was drinking every single day. I had a a a diazepam addiction as well. So I was trying to hide all of this in my face and in my eyes because I thought it was so obvious that you could see I had like these dependencies and addictions. So I just wouldn't make eye contact with with anyone. But it was the one thing that just kept me going because I had nothing else to do. Wow. Do you know what? That's so profound because something you've said there is very similar to my own story. I've spoken about this, I think on Instagram at least, where people often say, Wow, how did you get over? You know, as a as a young person, how did you pull through when there's no support? You're being sexually abused. Your mum's staying with your dad. And I was like, I, I don't know. But you're right, and I've said this before. There is a survival instinct that kicks in. It's often at the time when you will least expect it as well. And other people will show up for themselves in other ways, like they'll turn up for work, or you know, they'll. I don't know, they'll go for a walk every day. And I think that's really important to to say there as well is that there's lots of different ways you can show up for yourself. Yours just happens to be the gym, which is where you then sort of developed, I guess, this new version of yourself. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. Spot on. The first thing then, because you, you say there about going to the gym, getting up out of bed and getting into that routine, which again, easier said than done, but you know, that was your thing. That's what you really, really enjoyed. But then you mentioned those dependencies. So how long did it take for you to recognize, one, that you had a serious problem with alcohol diazepam Mm -hmm. and two, that you wanted to do something about it? Because there will be a lot of females and men actually in the same position that are probably thinking, oh, it's all right. I'm strong. I'm fit. I can can Mm. carry on doing all of this on the side. So I think I knew immediately that it wasn't okay and that there's something was wrong. But prior to the like period where I classed me having an addiction before that and before that relationship, the abusive relationship, I would binge drink a lot on weekends. I would 
go out, party, you know, go to festivals, go to raves and do all of these things. And I thought it was normal. I thought it was okay. I didn't see anything wrong. And then because that was so normal to me already, when I started to drink a little bit more, it was like, oh, but it's okay because it's just in the evening. It's just when I'm having dinner, you know, I still wake up the next day and no one knows, like no one in my family intervened because no one had a clue. I kept it a secret. So there was um, a part of me that felt a lot of shame about it. But I think I knew pretty quickly that the alcohol dependency grew and got out of hand because it was getting to a point where I couldn't get through a day without needing to have a drink. And I was drinking and taking diazepam at the same time, which I definitely would not recommend to anyone listening because I was just in an absolute state. And some days I would be having like almost little seizures where I was taking too much. And when it got to that point, and I, I was quite fortunate, I had a really good therapist throughout that whole time. So she knew, and I was really honest with her of what I was doing, what I was feeling. And she knew that whole time, my alcohol and diazepam dependency, you know, we worked together with a lot of strategies to get me to a point where I actually didn't need them. And it was because I was just trying to mask the pain and I was trying to survive. And they were the things that were able to numb me enough to deal with all of the pain and, and the grief that I was going through and to add a little bit more context you know, when I was in that relationship, I was actually pregnant and I did have an abortion and that wasn't a decision that I wanted to do and was an extremely difficult decision. So that came with a whole load of pain on its own. And I think that was probably the hardest part for me was going through that abortion. And I was just trying to escape my feelings. Well, this is what I was going to say. That is a numbing mechanism, isn't it? When we're taking diazepam or drinking or taking drugs, we're not we're not doing it because we're having a good time. We're doing it because we're trying not to feel. Yeah. Yeah. Is that, exactly is that, that how you would explain it? Yeah. I just didn't want to feel anything anymore. And it would just take that relief and that edge off because the evenings were the worst for me. I could keep myself busy throughout the day and then the evenings come and it would be awful. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. But then, you know, working with my, my therapist, I developed loads of different tools and strategies we worked on meditation, journaling, grounding techniques, spending more time in nature, pushing myself out of my comfort zone to do different things that I wouldn't normally do, to do creative arts and crafts and even chant and dance, like tribal dance around to get that energy out of me. So <laughs> I started so to do good. All- yeah. Oh, I was, I had a lot of resentment towards it at the beginning. I was like, I'm not doing that. I was like, I can't. I was like, I let go. <laughs> My inner critic wouldn't let me be silly. Um, yeah. so there was a lot of resentment and it took me a while, but when I started to do these strategies, I was like, fuck, they work. <laughs> and yes. then, yeah. So then I got to a point where I was like, right, I'm going to stop taking the diazepam. And I weaned myself off of the diazepam. And once I'd weaned myself off of that, it was a lot easier to wean myself off of alcohol. And I'd done that with just the help of my therapist. And now I don't even drink. Not because I can't have a drink and I can't be around drink and I can't trust myself anymore. It's more so that I actually know the negative effects that it has on me, how anxious it makes me for days afterwards, how Mm -hmm. terrible it is actually for your mental health and how damaging it is 
like you know like the other drugs that are illegal it's just as damaging as the drugs that are illegal so for me it's a case of like I respect my body so much more now that I don't want to put anything like that in me that's going to have harmful and and negative effects and it's not to say I'm never going to have a drink again you know I don't want to have rules like that on myself Christmas I had about a, a glass of bubbly and I think I had like one or two beers when I was on holiday last year that's it that's that's plenty for me. <laughs> it's just a taste sometimes, isn't it? It's to be, yeah. you know, sometimes I'm a bit like that. I don't I don't drink much at all, but sometimes you just fancy the taste of it. Like I do love a red wine, but I don't have it very often because yeah. it's it should be like everything else, isn't it? You you know, we we need to enjoy things in I hate to say it because it makes me sound about 80 <laughs> years old, but enjoy things in moderation. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it's true though. There's this, it's underrated, isn't it? Like, and, and even with fitness, actually, because this is, this brings me on to a, well, there's a couple of things you've said there, which I will come back to actually, because they're really important. But on that note of everything in moderation, mm. I have been through every single fitness fad possible. And one of the things that I've struggled with the entire time that I've been working out, and I think you know this. It, before I was 21, I think it was 21, I'd lost eight stone, which I have no idea what it is in pounds or kilograms, but it's a lot. There was a a time where I wasn't looking after myself and then I, I lost all this weight and started going to the gym. But for many, many years, I was very sort of, I would say obsessed actually with making sure that I did this many days training, this many hours, this, and actually you forget to actually just enjoy fitness and enjoy, you know, going to the gym and enjoy going for a walk and enjoy going for a run. It it became, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with a program, but for certain mindsets that can actually be detrimental because you feel like you're failing. So what's your experience of that personally and with your clients? So if I look back to like my earlier days when I first got into fitness, I definitely fell into like that bodybuilding trap, which is very restrictive. And I had boyfriends at the time that were bodybuilders. So I was really like engrossed into like that community. And I, growing up, I was very thin naturally. I even went to a nutritionist as a child because I got bullied for being so thin. So I was already super slim, didn't need to to try and be any smaller and lose any weight. But even me in that super slim body. And I was like six and a half stone. So like really thin. Wow. Yeah. I was still trying to be thinner. And I think that's because of like growing up, we had America's next top model rating bikinis in like the magazines, hot or not. And even though I was already super slim, I still didn't feel like it was good enough. You know, having a number super small on the scales was impressive to me. And I was, I was chasing that. So even though I was already in the body shape that you would class as acceptable, I was still susceptible to all of that that messaging yeah. and fell victim of it myself. So when I started to get into bodybuilding, I, I got severe anxiety around food and I couldn't eat a meal without it being weighed and knowing exactly what, what was in it. And I used to feel like everyone else was the weird ones <laughs> for not being like yeah. me. <laughs> So there was a lot of preoccupation around that. And, you know, the term, quote unquote, cheat meals or cheat days. I'd done all of that. I tried the Herbalife shakes. I tried keto and I tried all of these different approaches. 
just because that's what I was told that as a woman I needed to do in order to be acceptable and loved and attractive to, you know, men in the male gaze. Uh, so mm-hmm. I definitely like fell victim to a lot of those things myself. And as the years went on and I gained more knowledge around fitness and nutrition, I started to realize I could have a more flexible approach to it all. And then I started doing my own studying, my own research, working with my own coaches. And that really opened my eyes up to actually what's what's possible with, you know, with the right information there. Kind of going from the bodybuilding, mm-hmm. then moving into this more um, educated space, yeah. I suppose is a good way of putting it. If we were to look at the difference then, I mean, now, if you get a a woman coming along and she's really wanting that kind of rigid structure, she wants to go into bodybuilding, do you have a way of kind of like supporting that whilst also managing expectations and keeping them safe? Yes. So I actually have quite a few girls on, on the team at the moment that chose me as their coach because they knew I enjoy training like the bodybuilding style, but they also know I have this really mindful and holistic approach. So I find that I am, I already attract the women that are already self-aware that they don't want to have these negative habits that are going to have detrimental effects to mental health. And the women that would want a really strict approach that would have these cheat meal days, I find I don't attract them because my messaging doesn't talk to them. But I do still have conversations like, you know, through Instagram and in the DMs with, with those types of women. And I do think there's a level of intrigue, but also a level of fear of the unknown and letting go of that regimented routine they have because I think that's what actually keeps them safe it's their way of of control and keeps them safe so I definitely attract women when they're at that point of being a little bit more self-aware of their habits and their mental health and their mental well-being but they do say that to me it's like look I really enjoy this way of training I like how you train I don't want to track my calories I don't want to take progress photos because I feel like that's going to have a really negative impact on me but I still want to get these results and I'm like absolutely you've come like to the right place we can do all of that because we don't need to have this regimented approach we can actually create it with a lot of flexibility and the way we do that is actually by education when you educate someone, they're then empowered to make autonomous decisions themselves. They don't need me to tell them what to do. I kind of go, well, look, here are the two different options. You could either go down route A and you can be really strict with your training days, really strict with your food, sacrifice social events. If that's what you want to do, that's absolutely okay because you're in control of that decision and you're aware of what the different outcomes are. But the other side of that is route B, where we can actually have a lot more flexibility, a lot more freedom. We can set, you're going to train between three and five times a week instead of five times every week. We can manage your food in a way that actually suits your lifestyle instead of needing to eat out of Tupperware five times a day. Like I actually had a call with someone the other day and she works nights. And she said to me, my old coach would tell me I needed to eat an hour and a half before I train. So I would wake up at 1.30 in the morning, have my pre-workout meal, go back to sleep, get ready and go to the gym. And I was like, wow, we don't need to do that. There are so many different approaches we can take to your training and your nutrition. So the key thing is really just having um, or being open and honest about what you actually want, what you're willing to do to get those results. and then 
making sure that you've got a plan that fits in with your lifestyle. It's really important. I mean, everything that I say to people, you know, in in the psychotherapy practice, and I see all of these different disordered food patterns and body image issues, and as I said, body dysmorphia. I'm not a nutritionist and I'm not, you know, a weight loss coach or anything like that. But as a psychotherapist, we talk about mindful eating a lot and just like eating what you like. So if you tell someone they can't have a bagel, what's the first thing they want? They want a bagel. They might not eat bagels normally, but the minute you tell them you can't have one, and quite frankly, I love a bagel. So if you took that away from me, even though I probably have one a month, because again, I haven't said I can't have it. But if I, if someone said you can't have it, I'm going to see a packet of bagels every time I go to a supermarket and salivate. So I think there is this, um, it's like Pavlov's theory, isn't it? It's the idea that we're conditioned a certain way. And the minute someone comes along and says, I'm going to recondition your brain this way, there's going to be resistance. And I think one of the things that I like about what you're saying is you're working to find what works best for them. To anyone listening, that may sound like logical, right? And of course, I want to work with somebody that listens to me and and can help me over the long term to build the body I want. But unfortunately, in my experience and talking to a lot of women and men that have, you know, weight issues, body issues, so on, finding coaches like that isn't easy. So on that note, We spoke about some of your experiences with an abusive relationship. We spoke about the abortion very briefly there. And one of the things I think makes you different is that you are trying to be for other people what you needed for yourself. Yeah. And I remember training years ago and in our training, we were basically told, be a blank canvas don't tell anyone your story. You know, you are there for them to sort of see a reflection of themselves, but you're not, you're not supposed to influence, share, whatever, whatever. Actually, I am a bit of a rebel and I kind of knew that I needed somebody that was, when I was a younger person, that was a a lot like me that had that background that could understand trauma from a lived experience, but who wasn't triggered by their own trauma anymore and could help it wasn't available then, but that could help me to to grow. I didn't have that and I wanted to give that. I feel that a lot of coaches, particularly the masculine ones, not necessarily the masculine, uh, I don't mean men, I mean those with a really strong masculine energy, nothing wrong with that, but there is this, you will do as I say, otherwise you're a failure. You've come along with these lived personal experience offering, I think, the love and support you needed. So, was that a conscious decision? And if so, how are you now looking after yourself so that you're not triggered and so that you can really be there to hold that space for others? Well, right now I have my therapist that I see regularly. I've been with her for four years now. So, you know, we have a really great relationship and I have drop-in sessions with her as and when I feel like I need them, which tends to be around once a month. It's a little bit of a here's a a debrief of everything that's gone on, (laughs) a bit of a brain dump, and then I feel a million times better. So I know that I've got that safe space with my my therapist that I can go to. I also invest a lot into myself. So I have a business mentor and my own coach, my own fitness and nutrition as well, because I believe that we have blind spots and having someone that can take the emotion away from from what you're doing and, and oversee from a different viewpoint is really helpful. So I do make sure that I've got a lot of support in place for what I need from a professional perspective. But then 
in my sort of free time and, and personal time, I attend a lot of like sister circles or, or sharing circles. And some people might be like, what the hell is that? It sounds really airy fairy. And it kind of is, but Love it. I've embraced my airy fairy side and it's, it's who I am. So they're just like connection circles for women to go to. We all have a deep spiritual connection and we often start with some grounding meditation. And it's just a really beautiful space to be in a group of other women that hold space, share, that don't judge and that can just see you. So I make sure that I go to a lot of these events because they're really healing. Wow. And yeah, although I'm, you know, although I'm not triggered anymore, well, everyone's still triggered, but you know, those situations that I've been through no longer affect me. I can really talk about them openly without getting emotional. Um, so I know that I'm okay in that sense, but things still do, you know, pop up. Like I still struggle with grief and with it just being Mother's Day, I, I really struggled with sort of the grief around the grief around the abortion. So I make sure that I'm supported and by going to these communities of other like-minded women, I meditate pretty much daily. I journal, I spend a lot of time out in nature and I just make sure that I'm just, I just try to be as authentic as possible with my connections and not like hide behind anything. It feels like what you're saying is, if I'm right in saying this, and I think this is important to reflect back because this is an actionable point, actually. You talked about being authentic there, but what you've just said to me is everything that you would probably do for a friend too. So it yeah. sounds like what you're saying is that you've become your own best friend and you're taking yourself to spaces where you would take a best friend if they were, you know, needing a little bit of support, but you're also reflecting, you're also getting that support that you would also want your best friend to have. So it feels like that's what you've done. You've become your own best friend. Yeah. And do you know what? I love spending time on my own now. I'm super content with spending yeah. most of my time on my own, maybe too much time on my own, but it's a really nice <laughs> yeah. place to be at, to be honest, not dependent on someone else. <laughs> it's so true. And, and, you know, being authentic allows you to decide that, doesn't it? You don't have to just join the gang for a night out, getting leathered or whatever it is that people do just because that's what people do. It feels like you've found your tribe. Yeah. And don't get me wrong. It's really hard at times because it's hard to find people that are really like-minded and that want to have a more genuine, deeper connection and are, are willing to be vulnerable. Like that's not, I feel like it's not so easy to come across, which is partly why I try to be that person publicly and on, on my social media as well. And that was something I, I struggled with for, a little while was fully let like explaining and expressing who I am. Um, it's becoming a little easier yeah. as as time goes on. But going back to sort of your your point a moment ago, like before I decided to get into like the world of of coaching, I was actually doing a lot of campaigning on social media anyway about domestic abuse, about mental well being, and. I think that was a, a healing tool for me at the same time as well, um, because it helped me process what I was going through, what I was learning. And I was going to support groups with women's aid and different things like that as well. So I was already using my voice as a bit of a tool to help me heal and come to terms with it. And 
as part of that, I started to build like really genuine connections online with a, with a lot of other women that sort of like understood where I was coming from. So that was partly how I helped myself heal. And then now it's just progressed into like what I'm, what I'm doing now. And it feels really effortless to be able to talk about a lot of the things that I do talk about, no matter how painful they can sometimes be. So one of the things that's interesting there is we spoke earlier on off camera actually about community and Mm -hmm. building that community and how important it is to cultivate that for clients. What I do is very much one-to-one most of the time actually. So uh, it's less of a community, but obviously one of the things that I always promote for my patients, my clients is to find your community, find your tribe if you haven't already. And what you're saying is actually your journey before you became the coach that you are today was about using your voice to connect with others. And now you're using your voice to cultivate that space for others. So that's a real kind of beautiful journey there. And again, it's almost like you became your own best friend so that you could be there. I don't mean to sound cheesy, but so you could be that professional best friend for other people. Yeah. And it's funny. I trained with one of my old clients today who's like become a friend now, which is, is really lovely. And she said to me this morning, she was like, do you know what, Laura, if you weren't so open and honest about everything that you go through and the days where you feel like shit and the days where you don't feel like training and, you know, you're just so real about things in life, I probably wouldn't have gone yeah. to you as my coach. She was like, that's the reason I came to you. And in my inquiry forms, I do have a question on there, which asks, you know, why do you think I'm the right coach for you? And that's the thing that keeps popping up and up and up. And it just reconfirms me, you're doing the right thing, Laura, no matter how hard this is or how cringy you feel sometimes doing it, you're doing the right thing because the people that need help and that want help are listening and they're paying attention. My message is getting across, I'm doing my job. So I kind of put all that awkwardness aside and think, yeah, I'm actually, I'm actually doing what I set out to do here, helping other people. That's so cool though, because even in, you know, now you're talking about how cringe it can feel and how (laughs) awkward it can feel. And people will sometimes see your videos and you do on Instagram, TikTok, you do look very effortless. Like this is me. This is who I am. Whatever. Like me or lump me kind of thing. But actually there is still that cringe factor. And I think there is for all of us because ultimately we're all human, aren't we? And we all have our insecurities. We all have our flaws. And from speaking with professionals over the years, clients, you know, colleagues, friends, whatever, that's the same thing that keeps coming up. And today, out of interest, I just put on, you've seen the glamour, the bold glamour filter yes, on Yes, I loved that post. I loved that post that you've done. I was seeing all these women do it on TikTok and I thought, let me just, let me just see what I look like with this thing. I was intrigued. Yeah. <laughs> I looked like I'd spent £40,000 on my yes. face. And it was disturbing because I didn't think I looked bad before. But then I saw that and there was a little bit of me that was concerned. <laughs> I was like, yeah. oh, do do I need to do more? You know, just that brief second of do I need to do this stuff? And although it's a kind of fad, everyone knows it's faked, it's undetectable. Once you see yourself like that one too many times, and I think we've all used filters at one point or another, you do start to then, and one of the, this is why I'm saying this actually, by the way, Laura, because I know you're a f- sort of makeup free advocate, but, and I'm not, I'm not going to lie. I love my makeup, but I love that you are a makeup free advocate. I love that. And when you see yourself in a way that isn't actually real, 
it does create a bit of dysphoria, dysmorphia. So what people maybe won't see if they're listening to this is that you're not wearing makeup and you really don't wear makeup very often at all, do you? Yeah. Tell me about that. Yes, there's a couple of things that you said. So if I go back just like a year ago, I would use, you know, like the Instagram filters that would put a little bit of glitter or sparkle in the background, but they'd also like smooth out your face. So it wouldn't like change the shape of my face, but it would smooth my face. And I would, I would use those filters. And then I was like, hmm, this goes really against my values and what I tried to project. So I don't actually use even any of those like sparkly glittery filters anymore, even though I think they look pretty and they're cool. And I would like to just for the pretty element. Um, I've made a point of not, not really doing them. If I do, it's very rare that, that I will use one of them because I'm really conscious of that stuff really affected me and my confidence and how I Mm. viewed myself. But also what a contradiction that is. If my messaging is about accepting yourself, loving yourself, and yet I'm using filters and no one's actually getting to see what I look like, that's a massive contradiction in my messaging. So as a lot of things I've done over the last like year to two years, which have been a huge change. And even like wearing, not wearing makeup is one of those things. And I used to wear makeup because I've always had really bad acne when I was growing up and I got bullied in school for it. So in secondary school, I'd be caked in foundation just to try to hide my acne. And that stayed with me into like adulthood. I'd go into relationships. I would wake up in the morning with makeup on so they could never see me. It was a severe anxiety of mine. I wouldn't even go to the supermarket without it on. And then again, that lowest point of my life and I was reevaluating everything I was getting to know who I am getting to know what's important to me what values I have and doing all of this inward work even like my dress sense has changed now I just don't care what I wear anymore or what what I look like I'd I'd rather be comfortable so when I'm comfortable I'm confident and wearing makeup feels me un- makes me feel uncomfortable it makes my skin feel sticky. Like sometimes I like wearing it and I'm like, damn, you look good. You should put this on more often. Like, you know, like I feel myself. But day, I'm just so much more comfortable without anything on my skin. And I've realized that when I'm more comfortable, I'm more confident. So that was a whole journey on its own. But I want to be like completely honest here that I did go to a skin specialist that put me on like Environ skin products, mapped out my skin. That was an absolute game changer. I think that looking after my health, stopping all of the drinking, looking after my nutrition a lot more and generally just being healthier and happier has done the world of good for my skin. I've also come off of you know hormonal contraception. That's a personal choice of mine that worked well for me. But I think all of these things added up to my skin just being better and me letting it breathe. You know, I get my eyebrows tattooed on because I I love that. (laughs) And I put a bit of mascara on, but that's as much as I do now, because like I say, when I'm comfortable and confident. I I just love that. Comfortable and confident because it rolls off the tongue, first of all, but second of all, it's important that people find their comfort spot because that's, that's what it's all about. I mean, I'll be honest, I I am more than happy to go to the supermarket without makeup on or go to the gym without makeup on. It's not like I don't want to be seen without makeup. I haven't got a problem. I do really enjoy it. I'm not yeah. very good at drawing or painting, but I feel like that's the one thing I can paint on and get sort of <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and I do have a lot of thoughts. It's like a sort of, I don't know if you can relate to this, but 
from when you did wear makeup, but it's like a sort of mini meditation when you're doing your makeup. Yeah, Because yeah. it's just you and your time getting ready, preparing for the day, thinking about things. So I do find it really useful as that point in the day, which is just for me, it's before everybody else has a piece of me. That's my time. But at the same time, it's not like a make or break thing. I will, you know, I would happily be seen with just my mascara on. I think the issue is, is that you've got to be comfortable where you're comfortable. And that's what I think, from what I can see from what you're doing with your professional career now, that's your message, isn't it? You're not standing there saying, do this, do that. You're saying, I'm here to help you find your comfort zone, your spot. And not the, not the negative comfort zone, the positive comfort zone of like what you want to achieve. That's really important. And I think that's what, although there's a lot of... um body confidence people out there. One of the things that I think is really important that when we talk about body confidence, we do have people that actually look at that from a mind, body, soul perspective. It's not just about showing, although that is obviously very, very useful for us for people to show their true selves in terms of their bodies and their figures and their face. But it's also having somebody that can do that, but also can support you professionally also has done the mind work and continues to do that and invests in that. And that's where you're getting every box ticked. And I think that's why I've always seen that in you, Laura, that extra mile that you're willing to go to be the person that you needed for other people to be that professional best friend. So on that note, Going back to the professional thing, and I know we're probably going to have to come back together because there's so many different things that we won't get to talk about today. But one thing I wanted to really ask, and I think this is important for me always looking at my own fitness journey, but also for other people. How do you know what success looks like? How do you measure that? I mean, some people, we obviously they'll have different metrics. So they'll want to gain muscle or lose weight or tone up. But what would you say is the define? It's difficult. Sorry, I'm going to be really fussy here, but the definitive answer to what is success when it comes to your fitness journey. So this is going to be completely independent on the person. For my clients, success looks different for each and every one of them. But I think in order to reach a point where you feel successful in whatever that journey is, you first of all need to be clear on why you're doing it, and it needs to be deeper than. I just want to look good. And don't get me wrong, like there's some people that have done the work and that is good enough. Like for me now with my training, I train in a way to sculpt my physique the way that I want it to. And I enjoy training like that, but it's not coming from a place anymore anyway. It it was before, but anymore, it's not coming from a place of you need to do more to look better, to be attractive for someone else, to get that validation. It's not coming from that place anymore. It's coming from a place of I've done that work. And if I'm being completely honest, I don't particularly like my body when I'm naked, but I absolutely love and appreciate my body. And I'm not going to let that stop me from wearing what I want. And again, I know that's easy for me to say, given I'm in a socially acceptable body, but that deep work that was still done. And I still felt exactly the same as a lot of other people that do have a lot of deep insecurities about their body. So it's nothing wrong with having, you know, superficial surface level physique goals. But if you're wanting to like make real impactful change, it's getting clear on that, on that why, why are you doing it? What is this going to add to your life? What are your values? What's important to you? What are you willing to 
sacrifice or compromise on in order to get there? And how do you actually want to feel? Because more often than not, people will say, you know, I want to tone up and, and lose some weight and get back into this dress. But what I find is my clients notice the biggest shifts in their first four weeks of working with me. And yeah, of course, there's going to be fat loss that's going to be made in that time, but it's going to be quite small in the grand scheme of things. And in those first four weeks, they're already feeling way more confident. They've stopped having tantrums over what they're going to wear. It's no longer this big thing that they cry over. They don't have a floor drobe over the floor because they can pick an outfit and they feel good in it. Their relationships mm. around them notice the level of confidence in them. They're enjoying their life more because they're actually able to do things because we've got an approach that fits their lifestyle and their goals. So more often than not, people will want that, you know, fat loss, muscle building goal, but we'll get to that end feeling a lot quicker. And it's usually in like those first four weeks. And then we've got to that point where they're feeling super good in their first four weeks. So everything they do now is like that cherry on top. And they're genuinely excited about the change that they're making. If I could put that in a nutshell, what you're saying is, first of all, everyone's got a different goal. But second of all, it's about feeling good. And it's about making sure that that is, you mentioned comfortable and confident. I feel like that's actually the goal for all of us, really. We just want to be comfortable and confident. Because at 44, I can tell you now, my body is different in some good ways and equally in not, you know, I've aged. So it's not as it was before. But I'd I'd always been a lot lot bigger. So my my goal was always just to luckily I lost weight very very young so I didn't end up with some of the problems that people have when they lose a lot of weight which is you know they have to have extensive surgery. I never had to do that, but I spent a lot of time toning up, you know, trying to get your waist, get your stomach as flat as possible. Although I'll never have a flat stomach. I was I say this to a lot of people when they talk about wanting to get these body shapes. I've had a round stomach my entire life from being, you know, five years old, there's a little picture of me naked at five and I've got this round belly and I don't think it will ever go away. And I kind of just accept that that's it. Like I, I, unless I was to spend, I haven't got time to do this, but unless I was to spend every day in the gym, I don't know if I could actually achieve that. And who, what, you know, if we want that, it's because of what we think is what other people can achieve. But actually, if you look at a show that I love, because it just reminds me of how unique everybody is, mm-hmm. is Naked Attraction. Oh my gosh, I haven't watched I that love either. Naked Attraction. <laughs> Some people, I just, it just, I first of all, I'm amazed that anyone is willing to go on TV naked. <laughs> I like, from a psychological point of view, I'm like, what are you doing? Have you got colleagues and friends? <laughs> but equally, part of me, part of me is thinking, wow, you must be really confident. And the other part of me goes, oh, like there's me thinking my body's this, that and the other. But when I look at this vast array of naked people, we're all so different. Like you only have to look at people's genitals to realize how different we all are. And so when you take that mindset which is it's okay to be different because you don't really have a choice anyway. You're going to be different whether you like it or not. Then you just work with what you've got. And I think what you're saying, it comes back to comfortable and competent. That's really what we all want in the end. Just one last question then really, which is this whole calorie 
thing. So I spent many, many years, I've told you this before, under eating and actually putting weight on. And a lot of people say it's not possible. You're obviously not counting calories properly. Going back to what you were saying earlier, I was weighing everything out. I kept a food journal for 20 years pen to paper. Now I might have overweighed and underweighed at times, but I was really strict on it. And I think I'm going to just see what you think to this, but I think my metabolism scientifically had become efficient. In other words, it was very, very efficient at surviving. An inefficient metabolism, to my knowledge, is when it burns calories really, really quickly. So if if you're in a survival situation and you burn calories really, really quickly, you're going to die quicker because you're going to run out of, of energy quicker. So I was obviously really good at storing fat and I got trapped in that place for a long, long time, um, running, 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 not many weights at the time, not eating a lot. I was absolutely exhausted, didn't feel good, was obsessed with food, was obsessed with my weight. And over the years, I've sort of become much more flexible, but kind of know the ballpark figure. I'm quite sure, you know, 44, I can't actually eat as much as I would perhaps like to. I've just had to accept that and work with it. So tell me about what you see uh, in your industry with the calorie stuff, because I think that's the biggest one that will come up for most people, well, especially girls listening into this. Mm -hmm. So what you just described there was something called metabolic adaption, which is what happens when we're so used to consuming low calories, our body... um, you know, needs to store the energy in order for us to survive. Because if we started losing loads of weight really quickly, like you said, we would just die. So our body's actually really clever and knows what we need and knows how to keep us alive. It's just us that aren't always very good at giving our body what it needs when it tells us what we need. (laughs) Um, But I see this so often, you know, so many women coming to me eating 1200 calories, a thousand calories a day, being scared to eat more. And there's a couple of different ways I think I'm going to answer this, but well, usually when that client comes to me, we'll work on increasing the amount of food that they're actually eating. What they'll start to notice is they've got more energy and they're doing more. And because they're doing more, u- the body is able to utilize everything, you know, and they're coming out of that survival state um, and they start to see changes in their physique. They will probably get, obviously probably, they do start to get leaner and that more toned defined look. And it's um, really, it's actually really lovely being a part of that aha moment for the client when they're like yes oh my gosh I can eat more and feel this good and also look this good at the same time as well so yeah so nutrition is super complicated and you know there's many things that come into play and it's not always as simple as calories in versus calories out because a lot of people and I'm sure you'll probably know this you know that have been obese and have been obese for a long time or just overweight for a significant amount of time there's going to be adaptions in like their their hormone levels their insulin resistance so I've got a couple of clients at the moment that yeah they're eating in a calorie deficit but they they haven't or they've reached a plateau and they stopped losing weight because we then need to actually manage the insulin resistance that they've got so Calories in, calories out is a really reductionist view of looking at nutrition and fat loss because some clients can eat a diet in whole foods. And when I say whole foods, you know, that's potatoes, meat, lots of veg, not prepackaged food. And they can eat so much of that. They can eat olive oil, avocados, fats, olives, all of these delicious foods. And they'll get leaner, even though they're eating quite a lot of food. But it's because of the way the body utilizes all of the nutrients and processes 
all of the food in our body. So it's not always as simple as calories in versus calories out because different foods are digested differently in the body. And that's why I think, you know, having a really personalized approach to nutrition is really important. And something that I've only just started to duck up, something that I'm finalizing this week, which is a little bit early to share the good news, but I'm really excited because we've got um, a nutritionist that's coming and working in-house with me and my clients now. Wow. Yeah. yeah so I'm That really, is phenomenal. Yeah. I'm really excited because I'm aware that I don't know everything and I can't know everything and I can't do everything as well. So we're going to have a specialist come in that's going to really work on looking after that gut health as well, you know. Yes. You know the connection between the gut and the brain how powerful that link is and they call our gut our second brain for a, for a reason we've just had um dr sunny on actually who does this and uh, so he was my very first guest and he'll be coming back as well because again some of what you're saying is actually mirroring some of what he he said about the way we eat not just you know what we fiber Fiber yeah. is so important, you know, making sure he said, I'm sure it was yesterday and people can listen to this episode, it'll be episode uh, two with Dr. Sunny. He said yesterday that in the UK, only 9% of us are getting, oh no, is it average that we're getting 9% of fiber uh, for each adult, UK adult? I mean, that's just 9% of the fiber we should be getting because we're all eating in such a way. So having a nutritionist on board that knows about your gut health that's going to really be, because again, I said this to you off camera earlier, but one of the things I really like about you is you look at the mind, you look at the training, you look at the community, but you're looking deeper than that. I know you have a psychologist that you refer to as well with your, with your team, but you're also looking at nutrition and gut health. I mean, you're literally providing every single element of what somebody needs if they really are going to change their life and feel good. This isn't just about weight loss. And the the thing there, which I think is phenomenal that you've got this nutritionist on board is because I had this fear myself, actually, when I started out, you know, changing calories up and really increasing and do more exercise. There was actually a period of time where I did put weight on just for a brief period of time. Not that I would notice that now, but at the time I was so obsessed that I did. I mean, I, I, I probably have put weight on now. I couldn't care less. But the point is at the time, it was a massive fear, but when it actually happened and I realized it is a process, which I know everybody says, and probably most people are bored of hearing, but it's true. It was fine. So the thing that I thought I wouldn't be able to cope with was actually fine. And I ended up finding that I enjoyed moving my body and having the energy. I mean, no word of a lie, I would nap sometimes twice a day because I didn't have any energy. So just not having to take a nap was a big life-changing moment for me. <laughs> yeah, like most of my yeah. clients, they come on board and they're napping. <laughs> they're needing to nap to get through a day. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It is, but you don't realise because you're almost ashamed to say, I'm so tired because people will just go, oh, well, eat more. And it, you just can't get your head around it at the time. And again, working with the clients that I've worked with, you know, obviously I see a lot of them, uh, a lot of myself in them, sorry, which... It's quite scary because you see where you were when you're working with these people, but it's also a really useful tool, like you say, for me to stay in therapy supervision and my own coaching because it's a way of being really aware. Like you say, there's blind spots for all of us mentally and physically, staying really aware of where we're at. And and I think that although it's overly used, this this term, investing in yourself 
is the best thing that you can do. Now, I know financially a lot of people can't do that, which is why we're doing this podcast so that you can invest at least in listening to good quality people who really know what they're talking about. And, And that's one of the reasons that I wanted you on because there will be people that just can't afford to invest in themselves the way we have. But we've obviously worked up until this point, like you said, your journey was full of sort of trials and tribulations, both mentally, emotionally, and financially. Yeah. And you've worked your way to this point. And I know you're a massive podcast fan, aren't you? You do yeah. listen to podcasts or you used to at least. Oh, I know. I listen to them all the time, a bit of an, an addict. <laughs> yeah, which is so cool because it is where you get ideas and inspiration from. So n- undoubtedly people will listen to this and where they may not be able to quite invest in themselves yet they'll be able to at least follow you. So where can people find you, Laura? Yeah, of course. So I'm mainly on um, Instagram, also TikTok as well, but my handle is laurahater3. Um, you can find me on Facebook too. Amazing. And have you got a website that people can find you on or do they have to go through? Is it? Did you say at laurahater3? Yeah, at Laura Hater 3 I don't have um, a website, but there's all sort of links and everything in my Instagram bio. And also I've got loads of free resources. So if people do need help on something specific, I've got free resources. And my podcast channel is aimed at providing education so that you can go away and apply these practical things to your own fitness journey as so well. So they can come and listen to you. Yes. Yes. On your own podcast, which is phenomenal. Yeah. How long have you been doing your podcast for now, Laura? Oh, only, I only started it in January. So it's really new, but I am absolutely loving every second of it. Wow. So for all of you listeners, why don't you hop over to at Laura Hater 3 on Instagram, where you can find the free resources listen to uh, Laura's podcast as well. And Laura and I discussed before we started that there was going to be too much to get through in one in one episode. So hopefully Laura will come back and talk to us some more. And, and on that note, first of all, I want to thank you all for listening. But if you found this show helpful, do follow and subscribe. As you all know, it does wonders for the show and people can find it organically. But also, if you have any questions about anything we've talked about, drop me a line at hello at the newmindpodcast.com. I do read every email I get, whether that's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. I would love to hear from you. And of course, if you have any questions for Laura, if Laura's happy to come back on, then we can discuss those questions in that next episode. So Laura, thank you so much being here today so I'm so grateful because I think you've got so much to offer and I can't appreciate it enough so we will see you on the next episode I'm Ella McChrystal 